Hi there, it's Ed here with a short message before we start the pod this week. Did you know that our most informed investors get insights, articles and investment ideas from Tom, me and the team sent directly to them via email and it is completely free. You can join them. Just subscribe at fidelity.co.uk slash newsletters. Hello and welcome to the Personal Investor Podcast. I'm Ed Monk. Today on the show, how can investors work the dominance of the Magnificent Seven to their advantage? Those remarkable tech companies at the top of the US stock market have driven the bulk of returns and were a saving grace for investors last year. But what happens now when buying them often means buying at sky-high valuation and when years of spectacular future growth are already priced in? That is our focus today. If you enjoy the show, please rate us, share us or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that there are now two companies, Apple and Microsoft, which can say that they are larger in size than the entire UK stock market? And did you know that taken together, the so-called Magnificent Seven of Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, NVIDIA and Tesla are bigger than the UK, Japanese, French, Chinese and Canadian stock markets combined. Those are just a couple of the ways that you can illustrate the immense size and importance of this small group of companies that bestride the US and the world stock market. The fortunes of the Magnificent Seven are now critical to the overall direction of markets, and you will have struggled to make any money last year without them. The problem is their amazing success now comes with an amazing price tag, and backing them means you're buying companies which are already very highly valued. So what's the smart way to play the Magnificent Seven? To help answer that, I'm joined by Tom Stevenson, Investment Director here at Fidelity. Tom, welcome along. Um, we're going to be talking about a group of individual companies today. But you don't have to be the kind of investor that buys and sells individual company shares for this to be relevant, do you? The Magnificent Seven are relevant no matter what kind of investor you are. Yeah, hi, Ed. They certainly are. Um, and th- and that's because they completely dominate uh, all the, the, the stock market indices, the US stock market indices, but as a consequence, also the global stock market indices. So whatever type of investor you are, um, even if you're the most passive of investors, um, investing in the market through a passive fund or just through your company pension scheme, for example, you will almost certainly hold um, quite a lot of these shares, even if you didn't didn't realize it. And their performance also matters to you, um, even if you don't hold them, because um, uh, they are so important uh, in terms of the performance of the overall market that whether or not you keep up with the market has been largely determined by the extent to which you've held these shares. Yeah, I mean this 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 moniker by the way this this magnificent seven name that kind of came about last year basically didn't it when these um these companies emerged. I mean uh I, I was talking to someone about this subject this week and they kind of rolled their eyes as oh you know another sort of you know grouping branding together of of a load of a load of companies you know we've had we've had the bricks we've had the fangs fangs obviously overlap quite a lot with magnificent seven but these are uh, relevant because they have all reason. They're not just of a piece, kind of from the kind of technology point of view, but they're also just their size and the fact that they all feature at the top of the U.S. market adds some adds sort of. It, it's it's a legitimate grouping, isn't it? Well, it is and it isn't. Yeah, I mean they are they are quite different companies, yeah. uh, actually. But you're right. I mean, the, where the similarities arise are that they are all extremely big companies, mm. um, and they have all performed 
extremely well. And they tend to be influenced by the same factors. Yes. So there are reasons why you would clump them together. But actually, when you when you really analyze what the companies do, um, then they are actually very different. Yeah, we're going to do a bit of that today. And actually, I should say here, um, just for kind of completeness, there may be some very diligent people out there that say, well, you know, are these really the biggest seven companies? Actually, they're not. <laughs> um, uh, in point of fact, they are seven of the nine biggest companies. A couple of other companies do get in to that top nine, um, but they're not exactly comparable. You've got Berkshire Hathaway. We've spoken about that a lot in the past. That's a conglomerate, basically a grouping together of other companies and investments in other companies, including actually in the Magnificent Seven. Um, and then the other one beyond that is the Saudi Arabia oil company, pretty much the oil state of Saudi Arabia in stock market form. And you can't typically buy shares in that. So again, not completely comparable. So it is legitimate to say these are the biggest kind of, you know, trading companies out there. Um, and in terms of, of their influence on the market, you only have to look at the performance of the last two years, don't you, Tom? Because uh, these companies rose a great deal in 2023 and they accounted for most of the growth in the US market. Um, but the year before that, the reverse was true. They fell because of conditions that I'm sure we'll discuss. Um, and it was that that dragged the whole market downwards. Yes, I mean, it's 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 very interesting. The last two years has been a very interesting um, period in, in the markets, because actually, if you look at where the US stock market is today, uh, it's not a million miles away from where it was at the beginning of 2022. So the market has really gone nowhere in two years. But it has done so in, in quite a volatile fashion. As you, as you say, in 2022, it fell a lot. In 2023, it rose a lot. And really, the, the main driver of that um, performance, both down and up, was the performance of these Magnificent Seven uh, companies. And the reason for that, of course, is that, uh, well, one of the reasons for it is that, that as a group, uh, these stocks are extremely sensitive to movements in expectations about interest rates. Mm -hmm. And over that two-year period, we saw a big change uh, in 2022, um, uh, interest rates rose more than expected. And in 2023, the expectation grew perhaps more than expected for uh, a cut in interest uh, rates. Uh, and that was a big driver of the performance of these stocks. Yeah. And the growth of last year means, of course, that these Magnificent Seven companies are now trading on very high valuations. They always tend to, actually, sort of slightly higher than almost any other part of the market. But obviously, the growth uh, last year added to all of that. All logic suggests, all investment logic suggests that um, future returns can't continue at that kind of pace forever. And at some stage, it's going to make sense to move money towards the less highly valued areas of the market, right? I mean, uh, that's that's typically how history has gone in markets. But picking that moment is, is difficult, nigh on impossible. Yes. I mean, markets are sometimes driven by value um and sometimes they're much more momentum driven and 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 picking the moment when that um prevailing investment style changes is 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 very difficult uh difficult to do um over the very long run i think it's fair to say that 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 value is is the most important uh factor but uh, the 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 performance of value tends to happen in very short bursts, um, and if you don't catch those those bursts, then then you you miss out on on the the value. And and different parts of the market, you know, what counts as 
good value changes depending on different parts of the market. I mean, these these companies will have big supporters who say, look, they're just not, you, you can't compare them to other types of company. They're, their natural advantages, their, their the moats that they built around themselves mean that they should and deserve to trade on much higher valuations. And knowing what is fair value is is just it's just not something that we're used to doing really when it comes to these kind of companies. And and I was wondering, you know, what it might take to see a rotation from uh, the growth side of this you know, the stock market, which includes these companies to, to value. We saw a bit of that, didn't we? Um, or have seen a bit of that in the last couple of years, but then it sort of evaporated. We are in this delicate moment at the moment. We're waiting to see if 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 rates and inflation can continue to come down without there being, or without that being triggered by a recession. Um, now, if that can happen, then you might get economic growth, which means some of those more, or, or sorry, less highly valued, parts of the market more cyclical parts of the market do recover relative to these magnificent companies mm-hmm. um but people have said that a lot haven't they yeah so what you've described there is 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 this sort of so-called soft landing um mm-hmm. where um inflation and interest rates come down uh without effectively you know breaking something uh in the in the economy so that's a kind of you know what might be called a goldilocks scenario um and um you know if that were to happen then that would probably be good news for the broader market because yeah. growth would be less of a premium it there would be less scarcity of growth and so therefore people could have greater confidence that that, that the investments they were going to make would pay off uh, and they could look at valuations uh, more than focusing exclusively on on that growth the the issue i think the the really problematic issue is that no one really knows um how to define these magnificent seven companies mm. are they growth stocks yes are they defensive stocks yes they absolutely are so actually you know depending on what you're looking for at any point in the economic cycle you can probably find it within these yeah. uh, magnificent seven stocks and that's one of the reasons why they have led the market for so long uh, yeah and it's and it's also about sort of relative attractiveness isn't it and and the relative attractiveness versus these companies versus other types of companies because you know i'm sure if you ask the management of these companies these magnificent seven you know would you like there to be great growth in the economy they say yes please mm-hmm. you know it'd be great I, I i could sell many many more iphones or i could sell much more advertising on facebook mm-hmm if if the economy is booming but under those circumstances the attractiveness of commodities or financials or or, or, or lots of other types of company Mm. will also be will also improve so the relative attractiveness of them would would sort of level slightly i guess that's what we're talking about right yes i think so i I think it diff i think it's a different question if if the economy is slowing or if the economy is is doing very well i mean if the economy is doing well then you would expect everything to do well so then Mm. it's a more nuanced question which is going to be better these growth stocks or or the other um um you know more cyclical companies probably i think in a slowing market then uh, it becomes clearer that actually these kinds of stocks um look look pretty attractive for, for a number of reasons one they're defensive and b you're probably going to have falling um interest rates which as we've discussed many times before makes these long-term growth stocks seem more attractive so i think that it becomes a more difficult question in a 
in a in a more buoyant uh, economy. Yeah. And this, I think, is where the, the market probably does broaden out. Um, well, you can put or you can try at least to put some numbers on this sort of thing, Tom. And that's what I've been trying to do in the last week or so. Um, looking at the valuations on these companies and looking at a couple of measures in particular, there's many, many different va- ways to value companies, as you know, and our listeners will know. And no one is the sort of holy grail, is it? it they're, they're, they're often, uh, they need to be taken in combination and you need to be well aware of the limitations of them and the kind of flaws in them. Um, that all said, uh, I was looking at two things. I was looking at uh, the price to earnings ratio on a forward 12 months basis. So uh, what is the the price right now versus um, what the market expects the earnings to be? Mm-hmm. A simple measure that um, is widely used. And then I also looked at something called the PEG ratio. That's the price to earnings to growth, which basically compares that price to earnings ratio with earnings forecasts into the future. And the, the, the measure I was using for, was for the next five years. And it makes interesting reading. I'm going to try not to just list off numbers here because um, <laughs> that's, that doesn't make good podcasting. But um, on a purely PE basis, some of these companies actually don't look that expensive. Some do, but but some look relatively reasonable. You've got Meta and Alphabet on 21 or 22 times earnings. Apple's on about 27. Amazon, a bit punchy on 40. Microsoft is 34. Um, but when you look at the peg ratios, that's when sometimes these high valuations are are, are sort of highlighted. Now, with, with the peg readings, uh, a reading of one is what the market would consider fair value. The, the price now is fair based on its future earnings. More than one means those, that, that valuation isn't necessarily supported by um, expectations for earnings. You've got Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft, all with peg ratios above not one, but two, suggesting there's a lot of, you know, a lot of earnings are going to have to happen for the for these valuations to look fair. Tesla, that looks high on both level, both measures. You've got 67 times price to earnings and a peg rate reading of 2.7. So it really looks unsupported. NVIDIA of those names is probably the most interesting because the, the PE is fairly reasonable at 27 times and the peg reading is down at 0.55, which suggests the market thinks that the current price is actually pretty good value. And that has risen astronomically. Um, the point is of all this, um, and I'm going to point people to to an article where they can read all this in a bit more detail, but the point is there is a big range of valuations on these companies. They're not all the same and you shouldn't see them as all the same right and you shouldn't try to as we sort of said before lump them together and base investment decisions on them as a group altogether yeah i mean i think that analysis is very useful because uh the 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 pe ratio just the just a simple comparison of the price of a share to its expected earnings is a pretty blunt instrument and on that basis you look at all of these stocks and they're all valued at more than the average for the market so the u.s market is valued at about 20 times expected Mm -hmm. earnings which itself is more expensive than almost every other stock market in the world uh, as we've discussed uh, on this pod many times but the, the 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 nuance of the peg introducing the growth rate uh, is important because, you know, if a company can genuinely deliver consistent high 
growth above the growth rate of the economy as a whole, then you would expect to have to pay up for that because mm. the growth rate will bring that valuation down quite quite quickly. So that's, I mean, again, the peg is, uh, the, the floor in the peg is, uh, of both the PE and the peg, is that it is based on the accuracy, the reliability of the earnings forecast. Yeah. And that's always difficult. But, but you know, with that said, with that caveat uh, said, then the PEG is a more sophisticated measure than uh, than the than the blunt PE, and I think that Nvidia point that you make there is really interesting because you know if you just looked at the twenty seven times PE ratio for Nvidia, um, you'd say, well, that looks pretty expensive, but um, you know clearly it's delivering such remarkable growth in earnings. That, that it's justified, maybe. Yeah, and I, I don't know. It seems to me that when you have these huge numbers, which what we're, what we're talking about on these earnings, you know, in five years' time on a company like Nvidia, there has to be a huge range of possible outcomes there. Mm. And and so, yeah, the, I, I would I would be loath to say that anyone should should base buying decisions just off simple measures like like mm. that. Um, but it's clear that the market thinks that those earnings are going to continue and going to grow at a kind of astronomical level and that's why even now nvidia seems to be good value on those measures mm. um i was thinking tom about what individual investors can do with all this particularly if they don't buy these stocks individually but they invest in funds um i guess it depends you know we've spoken about that balance between whether the magnificent seven are going to continue their dominance and their preeminence or whether the rest of the market is going to catch up that's probably going to dictate which way you go right on this Yes. And there are, you know, there are, you know, pretty simple ways that you can, um, you know, play um, that assessment. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, these these companies are all U.S. companies yeah, uh, and they dominate the U.S. market. So, you know, quite simply deciding whether to invest in the U.S. market or to, to invest in non-U.S. markets is a very simple yeah. way of... And making a judgment on on the magnificent seven and and even just buying you know an an index tracking etf or funds of the us market is basically is is backing these companies isn't it, it in quite it, a significant way absolutely right it is now there are um there are tracker funds um which uh, are uh, not um premised on the market capitalization uh, of the companies uh, involved it's it's called an equal weighting uh, index yes. now there is there is uh, there is one on uh, available on our on our platform i think it's an invesco etf i think so yes yeah. um and so it is possible to invest in uh the s&p 500 index but on an equal weighted basis so essentially you're putting the same percentage investment in all 500 of the funds that will that will give you a very different um investment outcome from a, a market capitalization weighted index which is obviously skewed towards those those big companies so i think those are two quite simple ways that you can bet against the magnificent seven you can invest outside the us and you can invest in an equal weighted index rather than a market cap weighted index and, and indeed something like if you can find it something like a value um based tracking funds as, as well that would probably do a similar thing right It'd probably underweight those companies because they are so highly valued mm -hmm. and concentrate on on sort of more cheap cheaper parts of the market yes absolutely and and so that value um uh weighted um passive fund would actually be closer towards um the experience of an probably of an actively managed fund because an actively managed fund is almost by definition going to be underweight in those big companies because 
to not be underweight would have an enormous percentage of um uh, of assets invested in that, that handful of companies and most active funds will not do that well it's interesting you mentioned active funds i mean uh, is this not is this now not a, a a good time or could a case be made that actually now is a good time to go active in terms of u.s investments we don't always say that I mean, you know the, the old wisdom around this is that the u.s is such a well-researched market that it's very difficult for um, active investors to beat the benchmark um, so just go passive when it comes to the American stock market. But but now, um, and I was speaking to the, the fund analysts who pick our Select 50 list about this, and they were suggesting that actually a lot of the, the, the active US funds they're looking at, they take active positions in the Magnificent Seven, but not, you know, that some they might not hold at all, some they will overweight versus the market. They, you know, they are making these decisions based on their analysis and picking between these companies, not treating them as one big block. Um, so is there a case that actually now's a good time to pick on a an active US fund um, in order to navigate this 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 period and, and the extra risk that comes with this hyper concentration amongst these stocks, yes, I mean, it, it, arguably, it's always right to 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 do that to 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 actually analyze um, the differences as well as the similarities between the companies. Because as we've discussed, um, you know, that in terms of uh, well, a what they do, but also in terms of valuation, these companies are you know um, quite different. I mean, they're not yeah. a homogenous group uh, at all, and so you know, I think it's right to you know to for for an investor um, to to analyze them all separately and to make a decision according to the weighting, um, which is not just determined by the size of those companies. Indeed, indeed. Well, Tom, that is about all the time we have now. I will point people to the article that I've written on this, which includes some of those fund choices uh, that we mentioned. Um, for, for the funds taking active positions in the Magnificent Seven. Look out for it at the Markets and Insights section at fidelity.co.uk. For now, though, Tom, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ed. You've been listening to the Money Talk podcast. Check fidelity.co.uk for daily written updates and articles on these and other topics from across Fidelity in the UK. And subscribe via iTunes to get the podcast downloaded direct to your devices every week. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. Investors should note that the views expressed may no longer be current and may have already been acted upon. This information is not a personal recommendation for any particular investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to one of Fidelity's advisors or an authorised financial advisor of your choice. Overseas investments will be affected by movements in currency exchange rates and investments in emerging markets can be more volatile than other more developed markets. Reference to the specific securities should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell these securities and is included for the purposes of illustration only. Tax treatment depends on individual circumstances and all tax rules may change in the future. Withdrawals from a pension product may not be possible until you reach age 55, 57 from 2028. This podcast may not be reproduced or circulated without prior permission. No statements or representations made in this podcast are legally binding on Fidelity or the recipient. This podcast is meant only for UK residents and does not constitute an offer or a solicitation in any jurisdiction in which it may be unlawful to make such an offer or solicitation.